The amount of forest cover has actually increased in parts of Canada over the last century, but asserting that Canada doesn't have a deforestation problem overlooks a fundamental issue, forest degradation. When it comes to protecting and restoring biodiversity, it's not just about the amount of forest, it's about the quality of that forest. Welcome to Below the Canopy, a podcast brought to you by Community Forests International. I'm your host, Megan DeGraff. On this episode of Below the Canopy, we brought in a very special guest, Dr. Matthew Betts, a professor of forest biodiversity at Oregon State University. Matt's research focuses on plant and animal responses to forest management practices. Most recently, Matt investigated how forest management practices affect bird populations in eastern Canada. In this episode, Matt describes the importance of and challenges associated with conducting long-term ecological research, the usefulness of birds as indicator species, and the impact of forest degradation on birds in eastern Canada. Welcome, Matt. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for the invitation, Megan. I'm going to start off with a few questions around you as a human, and then we'll gradually move into some questions about your work and your areas of research. I know that you are currently a professor in the Department of Forest Ecosystems and Society at Oregon State University. Can you tell us what your connection is to New Brunswick? Well, I grew up in New Brunswick. I moved there when I was around eight years old and uh, went to school there. And also went to University of New Brunswick for a, a Bachelor of Science in Forestry and my PhD. And I keep coming back usually once or twice a year to visit family and my wife's family too in Nova Scotia. You can't stay away. No, it's impossible. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about what inspired your interest in the natural world. Right. Well, I mean, back in the days before iPhones, there really wasn't much to do but hang out in the forest where I grew up. So I spent hours and hours just beating around the forest, pretending I was various characters, often at night for some reason, um, skating on the river. And the more time I spent out there, I think the more I imprinted on it and started noticing some of the little things. You know, at the time when I was little, I didn't really have names for them all. I remember the first thing I did that really involved identifying anything in the forest was a collection of leaves that I did, I think, in grade five. Went through and identified about 20 species of trees, and that was my first foray into natural history. What, was that just on your own or was that some sort of school project? It was a school project, but, you know, I, at the risk of bragging slightly, I definitely <laughs> overachieved on that one. No, just, I, would this maybe be a lifelong pattern that you said early? <laughs> no, no, not necessarily. But I was just like, wow, there are more than three species out here. There could be, you know, and I kept going. So that's great. I, I think I still had that project, actually, <laughs> if I dug deep enough my mom's closet. Oh, amazing. Can you recall any formative experiences that really influenced your career path and your research interests? I would say my truly formative experience came late. You know, you often hear about naturalists having some formative experience, you know, at the age of five or six, E.O. Wilson was out collecting ants. And I always felt a little bit insecure about that. I, I feel like my uh, formative experience didn't come until really university age when I got a job as a point count technician. So what's that? I went out and counted birds for a summer up in northern New Brunswick. And it really was um, transformative for me, you know, just to learn about how many species there were, to recognize all of their songs, you know, of up to 70 species or more. And that really turned me on to ornithology and particularly birds in forests. 
But I do know also that you, you actually started with an undergraduate degree in political science, and then you completed an MA, and then you enrolled in an undergraduate forestry program and, and went on from there. Can you tell us what sort of motivated that particular education path and, and that eventual move into forestry? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my wife jokes that I'm a perpetual student, which is true. I mean, I'm still at university now. But um, no, it was an interest in environmental policy that that took me into political science at Queen's University. And I quickly learned that I was more interested in the details as well as just the broader policy aspects. So I, I tried to take as many genetics and evolution and ecology courses as I could, even during that degree, and then went on and did an environmental planning degree at Waterloo. And that's where I got really interested in forestry, in particular community forestry. And so one of my chapters was more social science oriented. What do humans get out of managing forests for themselves? And then one was more biophysical. You know, what's the outcome of community management of forests when it comes to ecology? And so I rekindled my interest in the ecology side. And then I went to work for some environmental NGOs and Quite often I would get, often from the professional forestry community, what do you know about forests? You don't even have a forestry degree. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to go back. And while I was working for the Nature Trust, I actually decided to go back and do an undergrad in forestry at UNB to test the hypothesis that, you know, there was a ton of stuff I didn't know or whether to some extent it was, um, you know, a club. And I would say I, there was a ton I didn't know. And I, I really learned a tremendous amount doing that undergrad in forestry, including the details of silviculture and Acadian forest and forest management planning. So I really have no regrets at all, even though people make fun of me for having two undergrads. I, I don't regret doing that. A lot of your research involves long-term ecological data. Can you tell us why is it important to pursue this type of long-term ecological research? Long-term ecological research is just really hard to do. So its importance is, yeah, I can't emphasize enough how critical it is. Most studies, and you probably already know this, Megan, but in science, we're rewarded for publishing, publishing a lot, publishing things quickly. You know, the duration of a master's degree or a PhD is short. Generally, data collection only happens over one or two years. And the problem is that, especially in forests, you know, in New Brunswick, we have trees, species that live up to three or 400 years old. Nature doesn't work that way in two, two and three year increments. Mm-hmm. You know, often a pattern you observe over two years can actually reverse itself over 10 or 15 years. Even over 10 years, what you're, what you're observing could just be a natural cycle. You know, you might see a decline in a population followed by an increase, you know, over a decadal oscillation of some kind. I was involved with a study on the effects of selection cutting on birds. So a nice controlled study, randomized design, and all the rigorous stuff you hope might come along with science. The cut happened over a period of two years. And the initial effects of that cut of selection cutting on mature forest birds was really negative. You know, about half of them just left and and leaving some early successional species in the stand. And so if you'd walked away from the study at that point, you'd say, oh my gosh, selection cutting is just absolutely bad for bird diversity, and especially mature bird diversity. And the study luckily went on for 15 years. And by that time, the trees that had been, that were remaining in the selection harvest had grown at much faster rates to the ones in the control. 
and the canopy has had become really deep and connected again. And actually, it looked a lot more like old forest than even the control. And the birds responded to that. You end up with higher densities of old forest species in that treatment than in the control. So a completely different result over that 15-year period. And that's not uncommon. You know, often we'll see results flip over time. I have a friend who's now retired at Oregon State University, and he initiated a study of unbridled optimism. He, he started something he calls a 200-year log decomposition study. And, you know, of course, he started at like 50, so he had no hope of outliving the experiment. And the question is just how long does dead wood stay around in a forest? And the relevance is huge for things like carbon sequestration, but also in terms of biodiversity and what uses that dead wood. And we now know a ton of species use dead wood on the forest floor. But some of the species out here, and it'll be the same for New Brunswick, could well take 200 years to decompose. And there's no way, you just can't get a, a process like decomposition using a short-term, you know, one or two-year study. Undoubtedly, there are challenges that accompany this kind of, of research. So can you tell us a little bit about what some of those challenges are when it comes to long-term data collection and analysis? There are several really important challenges. One is overcoming a problem of people losing enthusiasm over time. Either the researchers themselves, you know, like what's the difference between eight years of data collection and nine? You know, it seems like an in incremental gain. The other one, of course, is funding agencies, you know, maintaining enthusiasm, um, government representatives or private foundations over that duration is just remarkable. It's very difficult to do. And then finally, there is the, the incentive part of, you know, especially young scientists need to publish in order to survive in their careers. So it's tricky to say, well, just, you know, wait another 10 years and I'll have an answer. So those are the big challenges to long-term research. And luckily, I've been lucky enough to be involved with a long-term ecological research program here in the U.S. It's actually, there are 28 sites across the whole country doing long-term research, and it's funded by the National Science Foundation. In Canada, to my knowledge, we don't have anything like that. And I really think we should. You know, I think every province at least should have a place, landscape scale, where we're doing long-term research on how forests work and how different forest management treatments work. Much of your research involves studying bird populations. So tell us why birds and not another species. Yeah, well, that's a that's another good question. <laughs> I mean, some of it honestly is some bias. I just think they're super cool. I got into birds, I think, because you can watch their behavior. You know, you unlike uh, doing mammal research, for example, where you're really collecting poop, really, for lack of a better term, <laughs> unless you're studying the glamorous life of scientists. <laughs> yeah. So, but birds, you can watch them, you know, go about their daily lives. And if you're careful and, and it's just fascinating to, to see that behavior, but also they've been deemed indicator species. So birds are everywhere. They're easy to measure. You can hear them. As I said, you can easily see them. And so we have some incredible long-term data sets for birds globally and the Breeding Bird Survey in the U.S. and Canada, and now eBird that Cornell develops. So we can do things like look at population trends for birds using citizen science data over 30, 40 years, which is truly awesome. Uh, often I get asked, like, are they good indicator species? 
Because really one of the things you want in an indicator species is something that responds quickly to change, you know, either clear-cut harvesting or environmental degradation of some sort. And, you know, in a way, the problem with birds is that they're, they're actually not super sensitive to some changes. You know, fr frogs are actually a lot more sensitive to many environmental changes than birds. Mm -hmm. So, bird, you know, it goes back to the canary in the coal mine. Birds being used as an indicator of toxic gases. But really, you know, once that canary dies, you got to get out. You know, I mean, it's, it's really more of a last minute warning. And so I say this often, but if bird populations are tanking, you can be sure that a whole bunch of other species that are more sensitive have already tanked. So the, the ideal indicator would be one that is an early warning system. I don't think birds actually are. I think they're a late warning system. Wow, that's pretty, that's pretty chilling. Thanks. Sorry for that. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's, <laughs> that's what we're here, here for is to hear the important stuff. You mentioned degradation. You are a lead author on an article that was published earlier this year in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution. This article shows that forest degradation, more than loss, drives declines in bird populations in eastern Canada. What is the difference between forest degradation and loss? Well, I'm starting to wonder if you were reviewer two on our article. <laughs> but that I was, was one of the key questions. And I was amazed actually how much trouble we had getting that idea across to the point where oh. we need to do a we need to do a really simple cartoon that that outlined the difference between degradation and loss. And and so it's an important question um, for listeners to get their heads around. I'll do my best to explain it. I mean, loss really is, if you think about permanent conversion of forest to some other use, you know, so you clear cut tropical rainforest and now you have cows pasturing in that area. Or we 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 cut forest around Fredericton and a suburb goes in. And of course, permanent is a matter of time scale, isn't it? I mean, it might be forest sometime a thousand years from now, but on our human time spans, it's not going to be forest for a long time. It's a conversion. Degradation really is more changes in the character, the structure and the composition of that forest that degrades its capacity to house biodiversity, as it might have historically, degrades its ability to do important ecosystem functions like filtering water or sequestering carbon. So it's a, it's a really fundamental difference. Again, I'm surprised sometimes that it's not more clear to the general public. So I hope if there's one takeaway message from this interview, it's that one. Can you tell us a little bit about how researchers actually quantify that kind of degradation? I would say we have not come up with a universal way of defining it yet. Mm -hmm. It's tricky because it's multifaceted. You know, degradation can involve defaunation, you know, due to hunting in adjacent areas beside the roads in the tropics. It can be, you know, removing all the mahogany trees or high grading out all the sugar maple. It can involve population declines of birds, which is what we observed due to differing forest practices. It's got so many elements to it, it's difficult to come up with a single definition. But the way we did it was to quantify bird habitat, especially for mature forest-associated species. And if we saw substantial habitat declines, even though forest cover was staying the same, we interpreted that as degradation from a bird population standpoint. So as far as I know, we were the first to do that, and we'll, we'll see if that approach takes off. That's one, one way of going about it. Can we explore that a little bit more? Can you tell us why does forest degradation impact bird populations, and why does the composition of a forest matter for bird habitat? 
Right. Well, that's exactly the reason why I was on a sort of mini sabbatical in New Brunswick a few years ago. And that the question you just asked is why we went about the study. You know, often it is, if you look at New Brunswick forest cover over the last 35 years, it has actually increased by about 6%. And that's due to colonization of agricultural fields by trees and that sort of thing. But does that necessarily mean that forest-associated bird species will be doing well? And so that was the open question, because we knew a lot of that regeneration, that afforestation happening, was old field white spruce. Clearcuts are planted and converted from Acadian mixed forest or Wabanaki mixed forest to plantations of single species often. So we had a sense that probably we were going to see that degradation effect, but we didn't know it for sure. And, and sure enough, that's what we observed. One of my favorite comments that I saw online about our article was, thanks, Dr. Betts, for, for showing to us what we already knew. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that's really all we did. You know, we, we quantified this, if it's green, it's good. We tested this, if it's green, it's good hypothesis and showed really that, of course, forest composition and forest age matter. Mm-hmm. Can you just review some of the top line impacts on birds from that degradation? Yeah, I think at the extreme end, over just 35 years, we had some bird species losing up to 40% of their habitat. Wow. Which is remarkable, really. Yeah. You know, at greater than 1% per year, that would put a species on some red list, you know, internationally. So it was actually a little surprising even to us, the rate of decline in, in habitat for especially, again, mature forest-associated species like golden crown kinglet and Blackburnian warbler, and boreal chickadee. So that was also a bit unfortunate finding. What are some of the other risks of a simplified forest? Yeah, I mentioned this just a little bit earlier, but some of the other risks include decreased water filtration capacity, some ecosystem services that humans consider really important. Carbon sequestration is another one and some work we haven't published yet. We're finding above ground carbon to have declined substantially over 35 years. And obviously that's a problem in a in a region that's primarily forest dominated, that we're not playing a part when it comes to storing carbon. Th- those are the big ones. Biodiversity declines and ecosystem services are often the sort of unfortunate byproduct of degradation. Can you tell us a little bit about what kinds of management recommendations come out of an article like that? Yeah, the re- management recommendations from the article were not complex. It really, it was. We've lost so much mature forest, especially mature mixed forest in, in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, that we need to think about alternative ways of managing our forests and protecting that mature forest. And by protecting, I don't mean necessarily setting it aside in parks. I mean, managing it well and not converting it to, to plantation or otherwise intensively managing it by using pre-commercial thinning. Hopefully we can end on a, on a bit of a positive note. What research topics or projects are you most excited about working on right now? Yeah, I think one of the things I'm most excited about is really trying to inventory properly old forests and to find out what sorts of species live there. Both in New Brunswick and in Oregon, we've done a pretty good job of figuring out which vertebrate species, for example, are associated with old forests, which herbaceous plant species, etc. But there's this whole suite of hidden biodiversity 
that we don't know anything about. You know, we did 80 soil cores at the H.J. Andrews long-term research site, which isn't very many. And we uncovered 4,000 organizational taxonomic units, OTUs, which are equivalent to species. So imagine finding 4,000 species in 80 soil cores. It's just remarkable. And nobody knows what they do. You know, these are species of soil fungi, mycorrhizal fungi. And the same goes for fungi that live inside of needles. Who knew? You know, there are thousands of species living inside the needles of our conifers and in the maritimes. And so what I'm most excited about is inventorying forests to see how those species change over successional time and also finding out what role they have in forest ecosystems. And it's thought, it's hypothesized, these needle endophytes actually might help prevent herbivory. Mm. So help prevent insects from chewing on those needles. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Trees are very long lived, so how can they possibly win an evolutionary arms race against insect herbivores? So the answer might be that they have these needle endophytes that are able to adapt much more quickly than the tree could. So I just, I'm really curious about that and then how that can actually even help our management when it comes to, to finding a way of, of trees resisting herbivory. You know, it's a big deal in maritimes with budworm. Yeah. Yeah. And increasingly all of the insect pests that are popping up on our doorstep due to the effects of climate change and, and other factors too, like emerald ash borer and hemlock woolly adelgid and all of those. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, yeah, what natural lines of defense do we have? And is there any way of capitalizing on those? Mm -hmm. And we certainly don't have a good handle at all on what what little natural resistance there seems to be among those species against those insect pests. We don't have a great handle on how that happens or or what are the causes of that. Mm -hmm. So who knows? Maybe there's there's something in there with endophytes. What do you think is the single greatest thing we can do to repair our relationships to the forest? A single thing. Wow. Oh, wow. yeah. Just one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not allowed Only one. Okay. I had a whole bunch in my mind when you asked. Yeah, you question. have to force rank them and give us your number one. I'm just teasing. <laughs> if, you've got, if you've got a laundry list, you can, you can try. <laughs> so you're not going to cut me off, huh? So, well, I, I didn't say that, but you. <laughs> <laughs> so, E.O. Wilson, you know, I think coined the term biophilia, mm. that we have an inherent love of nature as a species. And of course, we're so connected to it. My daughter was pointing this out the other day. She said, I just, I wish people understood how incredibly dependent we are. I mean, in, in this day and age, we've become so separate, or we think we're separate, we're really not. And so I'd say the single greatest thing we can do to repair our relationship is to get to know it again mm. and understand yeah. that it's our life support system. And that really we need to be doing everything we possibly can to continue its function. Otherwise, I think we're in big trouble. But I think I have a lot of optimism about our ability to do that as a species. You know, we have big brains. We're incredibly good at solving problems. So I think rekindling this attachment we have to nature combined with our problem-solving ability, and we could do really well over the next 50 years. What gives you hope in your line of work? The reason I'm a professor is because I really enjoy seeing the younger generations coming up and becoming fascinated with nature and coming up with new ways of measuring it and new ways of of doing management and 
I think the thing that gives me hope is that um, that's there. And I do see positive change as a result of of that new generation. And, and honestly, even the older generation, things are definitely on the move when it comes to international policy for biodiversity, conservation, and climate uh, mitigation. So, you know, I don't want to leave listeners with too optimistic an outlook because it really, we're at a crux <laughs> over the next 10 years. You know, we've really got to sort this out. So it can't be the old, you know, when I was a kid growing up, I remember that the baby boomers saying, oh, this is all your job. You know, we, we rucked it up and now it's your job to fix. And I just absolutely hated that. It gave yeah. <laughs> a lot of pressure on us as a generation. And I'm not going to say that to this coming generation because I do feel it for those of us who are, quote, in power, you know, now it, it's it's our job, really. It's, the time span's too short to wait for people to go out and get degrees and and relate new policy solutions. We can do it. We need to do it now. I think that was an excellent way to end this podcast. Thank you, Matt. Oh, yeah. Thanks. That, that was a ramble. I'm sorry. but No, um, no, no. All good. Is there anything we missed or important points that you think you'd like to hit home? No, I, I think you've got it. I mean, God forbid your listeners have to listen to even half of that. <laughs> That was Matt Betts, Professor of Forest Biodiversity at Oregon State University. And I'm Megan DeGraff. Thank you for listening to Below the Canopy, a podcast from Community Forests International. This project has been made possible by the Government of Canada. We would also like to thank audio engineer Robin Edgar for her work on this show. Please let us know if you enjoyed this episode, and don't forget to subscribe to the show so that you never miss one. In the meantime, you can learn more about Community Forests International by visiting forestsinternational.org.